morning. Welcome again, everyone, to our church. It has been a great week to be part of South Lansing Christian Church. We had BBS this week. You'll hear a little bit more about that later, singing those songs together. Some of you guys are really good at the motions. Some of you guys need a little work, and that's okay. You can practice by serving back in Kid City. That would be a great way to do that. Now, we're, uh, in, we're in the series on the Ten Commandments as a church, and uh, this is going to feel like a little bit of a tone shift from hanging out and having fun as a uh, VBS crew and uh, now talking about sin. And sometimes in the church, we don't want to talk about sin all that much because, you know, it makes us uncomfortable and uh, we're Americans. We don't want people to tell us what to do. But understanding sin is essential to being a follower of Jesus for a couple reasons. First, understanding sin helps us understand just what God has done for us. And second, understanding sin helps us know how to better follow God and and live out his will for our lives. And so if we had time this summer, we would spend a little bit more time uh, extending this series out a few more weeks to cover the commandments more in depth. But as it is, we're spending a few weeks in the Ten Commandments. Now this whole series is called Fallout because we're looking at the effects of how our sin has wrecked our relationships with one another, our relationship with God, and our relationship with creation. And you can't speak about Fallout without at least considering nuclear technology. I mean, it's, it's what comes to mind. They make video games about Fallout. Fallout is just like this, this concept in our mind. And so, thinking about Fallout, 37 years ago, the world experienced its worst ever civil nuclear disaster. You guys are probably familiar with this. It's the, the meltdown at the Chernobyl plant in Ukraine. Pripyat was a city. And, uh, and, and this all came about because the plant was going to go for some routine scheduled maintenance, uh, kind of partial shutdown. And while that was happening, there was a power failure and some people that were running the, the reactor didn't really use common sense and pulled out too many of the control rods leading to this runaway reaction. The details are beyond me. Certainly not a nuclear physicist, but that's like in a nutshell, after reading and studying Wikipedia very, very seriously for a little while, I I feel like I know this stuff now and can convey it to you. Anyways, all that to say, uh, it was a, a runaway nuclear reaction caused by some people who didn't seem to use common sense and follow the protocol that they should have. Now, because of that, Uh, Our world is continuing to deal with the fallout, the consequences of that decision. On that day, uh, the day of the the reactor meltdown, 237 uh, workers had to be evacuated from the plant. Dozens passed away, and uh, many were hospitalized. Um, 110,000 people had to flee their homes. That's the population of, uh, roughly the population of the city of Lansing. Had to flee their homes, never to come back, and... Um, the exclusion zone there where those people can't come back, depending on which scientist you ask, they might not be able to come back for 320 years or 20,000 years. I don't know. You know, it's a pretty close window there, small range, but they are going to be gone for a long, long time. And, uh, and the fallout continues. The, the city of Pripyat will, will not be rehomed. And, um, as of five years ago, the country of Ukraine, Ukraine was spending almost 10% of their national budget to, to deal with the effects of these decisions made 30 years ago. We could go on, but the disaster is familiar to most of us. And here's the point. There are always consequences for our actions, repercussions for the decisions we make. And so whether that's human error in operating a nuclear power plant, which is, seems pretty serious, or it's human error in the decisions and choices we make in our relationship with God, we are constantly dealing with the fallout of the things we do. 
Now this morning, you might be thinking, sure, we make mistakes, but aren't we all kind of generally good? Isn't there a good core at the center of every human being? I mean, that seems like what our world believes. Don't we all have common sense for the most part? I mean, because obviously if we have common sense, then we'll agree on things. The world will be a better place. If the plant operators at Chernobyl would have had common sense, they wouldn't have removed so many control rods, and that nuclear reaction wouldn't have run away. If you all had more common sense, you would have easily agreed with me last week when I said that Zelda Wind Waker was the best video game of all time. It's common sense. We don't even need to say these things, and you should just know them. When it comes to life, there are lots of things like that, lots of things that seem like they're common sense. If you go outside in the, the rain, you're going to get wet. It's common sense. If you climb a tree and you go too high and the the tree breaks, it's common sense that you'll fall and you'll get hurt. It should be common sense that you don't drive in a snowstorm on an ice-covered I-96 or you'll slide off into the median out here, right? These things seem pretty self-evident. And I think in reflecting on the Ten Commandments, some of the things in here seem pretty self-evident to me too. They seem like matters of common sense. Things like, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. These things seem to be commonly shared values in which we should just know that we shouldn't do these things. They're they're things we should not do, universally condemned as wrong, easy to see that we shouldn't wander into these sins, and yet common sense doesn't seem to be so common. And that good that we assume is at the core of every human being, Scripture doesn't really give us support for that. In fact, we'll be seeing a little later that at the core of every human being might be something that is not, in fact, good. And so what might be so obvious and self-evident to you might not be as clear to me and, and vice versa. What I think is definitely the right way to go might not be the right way to go in your eyes. And even if we all agree on something and say, this is right, This is what we understand to be the way to go. That might not line up with what God wants us to do. And even then, if we know that God wants us to do something, we might find ourselves going a different direction. And so for all of us, God has had to to hand us truth in the form of, of laws in the Old Testament and instructions to believers in the New Testament. That's how we got the Ten Commandments, laws written to a people who were already part of God's household, And that's what we're going to be digging into today. So turn with me to to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse 8. Last week we read the first seven verses. We talked about the first three commandments. And today we're jumping into commandment number four with verse 8. God says this, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you and your sons and your daughters and your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Commandment number five. Commandment number yeah, five, honor your father and mother, and then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So we've got these two commandments. Last week we talked about these commandments that were all God-focused. Uh, have no other gods before me. 
Don't make any idols. Treat God's name with respect. And today we've got another commandment that seems to be God-focused. It's, it's honor the Sabbath day. We see God's pattern in the creation account where he rested on the seventh day. And we talked about all of this about a month ago. And then we flip over to commandments that seem to be more us-based. And so we have these commandments about don't lie and don't steal and don't covet. Don't try to take what does not belong to you. And, and, and this shift from commandments number one, commandments numbers one through four to commandment six through ten seems to be so clear that, that God's people have recognized it for, for ages, for generations. And we've kind of wondered about it and, and asked ourselves, why is there a shift here? And, and so some people, they think that the first four commandments are commands, commandments of faith. Uh, these are all to do with our relationship with God, while the other commandments are maybe commandments of ethics or, or social norms, you know, to deal with us, and that, that, that's where that division lies. Some see a real clear sacred, secular division in, in how we're supposed to treat each other, you know, physical world versus spiritual world. I'm not so sure those divisions really lie that way or, or you know, the, the commandments fall that way, but I think that maybe a good way to, to understand this, because there is a shift here, a, a good way to, to take note of this shift is to say that our sin against God, the way that our relationship has been affected, our sin against God also also has, uh, has consequences. The fallout of our sin against God infects our relationship with one another as well. Because humans sinned and broke God's law, putting ourselves in God's place, rejecting his authority like we talked about last week, we now try to judge for ourselves what's right. And when we do that, man, we make all kinds of mistakes. And instead of bringing peace and life among us as, as humans, as people, we instead bring destruction and death. Speaking of that, let's read the next commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13. You must not murder. Now, I'm sorry, it's VBS Day, and we have all the kids in here, and we're going to spend the rest of our sermon talking about murder. So uh, you're welcome, parents, I guess. I don't know. But this is where we're landing. We're going to talk about this for a little while. This is where we get to that theme of common sense. I mean, how much simpler can it get than you shouldn't murder someone? So, I mean, case closed. This is universally self-evident. We can go home and eat Sunday lunch early because the sermon is over, right? This is, this is common sense. Don't murder people. How much simpler can it get than that? And yet, I don't know if we all agree. I don't know if we all are real clear on, on the implications of this commandment in how we live our lives. Because if we really wanted to step in it this morning and make ourselves a little uncomfortable... This commandment has implications. I mean, it's short, but does this commandment have anything to say about, I don't know, war? People die there. Does it have anything to say about something as personal as an abortion? However you think about that, there's an extinguishing of life. Does this have anything to say about capital punishment? Or what about euthanasia? What about quality of life? I mean, we could make ourselves uncomfortable real quick because the world out there certainly doesn't agree on any of these issues. But even in the church, in a room like this, there are variations of opinion. All of these topics involve the extinguishing of life, but I don't know that we all agree on where the line lies. 
And so when it comes to killing, maybe this isn't a matter of common sense at all. And, you know, I, I don't think as much as we want it to be a matter of common sense that it has been for all of human history. If you want to turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 4 this morning, last week we looked at Genesis 3 and we talked about the fall of humans where they chose sin, they chose to place themselves in God's place, and because of their sin, by, by taking that forbidden fruit, the world is under a curse, and, and eventually God had to send his son Jesus to redeem us because we broke things, right? In chapter 4, we see the ongoing effects of sin and how they're ruining human relationships. Cain and Abel are the, the sons of Adam and Eve, their, their first kids, and This is how that story goes. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. And when she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. And the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know. Cain responded, am I my brother's guardian? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Look, I think we can all agree it is, it's not okay. It's definitely not okay to kill your sibling in cold blood. Seems like a pretty good example of common sense. And yet it wasn't common sense to Cain. To him, murder seemed like this perfectly reasonable solution to his problem here. I think we should pause for a minute here because if you're like me, you read this, Genesis chapter 4 on January 1, the first day of your blitz through the Bible in a year reading plan, and you, you, know, you turn the page, you read this, you keep turning more pages because you've got to get through and keep on your schedule. And I think sometimes we miss the, the impact of this story. I mean, imagine being Cain. To have done this deed, to have your own sibling's blood on your hands, you'd be dealing with the fallout of that decision for the rest of your life. The regrets, the anger, the fear, the sadness, the disgust. And then following this first murder, this sin has has continued to hound humanity for our entire history. And by the time of Moses, it had become such an issue that God had to say to his people, the Israelites, he had to say, you must not murder because they weren't getting Now, murder is wrong because God has said so. He's given this command, you must not murder. But murder is also wrong, and it was so before this commandment, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that's because 
Because all of life comes, it stems from God. Life belongs to God. God alone has the ability to, and the ability, the authority to give and to take life. And in some very specific circumstances, he delegates that authority. Life belongs to God, but ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been dealing with the fallout, the consequences of human sin. And ever since then, murder has been a part of our story, an unwanted part of our lives. And so this morning, if a, a prohibition against killing has not been common sense, you know, quote-unquote, since the Garden of Eden, then I don't think we can trust our gut when it comes to these matters. We, we're not going to get it right all on our own. Humans have proven again and again that, that our moral compass is off-center. In fact, when it comes to that, like, that good core at the center of each person that we assume is there, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah tells us this, Some of you have probably memorized this. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. I'll make it there. You know, Isaiah is a very long book. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? If someone ever tells you to follow your heart, they're giving you bad advice. Jesus himself in the Gospels has some things to say about the status of the human heart, about the kinds of things that come out of our hearts. It's not good things. The core of who we are apart from Jesus is not good. That, that, that center is, is not morally just and upright. And so when it comes to things like those loud, petty political arguments that we have outside of the church, about those hot-button topics and issues, as well as when it comes to specifically how we treat our neighbor and treat those inside of the church and those in our communities, I think we need to carefully consider what God has said. You must not murder and understand that, that, that God's prohibition against murder extends far beyond what we think we should not do, and it extends into what we should do. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus mentions this commandment. This is back in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus has a way of intensifying these things, doesn't he? God's standard is so far above us that it seems impossible. It it is impossible for us in our fallen state. I mean, how is it possible for us to avoid anger? Is God really serious about this? Don't you think Jesus, maybe, maybe he's just exaggerating a bit? How can anger and judgment for that be equated to murder and judgment for that? That's not common sense. That's an incredibly high bar. Why is the bar so high? I think what it comes down to is that for his people, God wants this. God wants his people to avoid violence. You know, in the Old Testament, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, how we have these 
these perceptions of the Old Testament. We think it's a, a book of you know, God's wrath and that he's capricious. And, and in fact, the Old Testament is full of God's grace. And we often think of the Old Testament also as a place where God's people kill all the time. But when you read it, when you get down to it, God's people were only given the authority to kill in a few specific delegated situations and only as a response to human sin. And furthermore, nowhere in the New Testament are God's people given the okay to go kill. In fact, Christians in the New Testament, they don't ever kill. We have no record of that. Christians are sometimes killed themselves, but Christians are not the ones doing the killing. And if that's the case, if we want to be people who really live out the gospel and follow Jesus, then we've got some questions to ask ourselves. How can we be people who avoid murder, but also, as Jesus says, how can we be people who avoid anger and cursing others and, and, and holding rage and grudges? How do we step away from hate? I think what it comes down to is this. As, as God's people, we are to seek life. Seek life. Since the Bible is pretty clear that all life belongs to God, God is the author of life. God's standards are pretty clear that we should not be killing one another and that we're not even to be harboring hate or anger against each other. Then, then I think it's on us to be proactive and to step out and to seek life. And so instead of protesting those we're against or punishing those we think uh, have wronged us in some way, I think that we as God's people need to seek life. If it's an unborn child that you're worried about, how are you seeking life? How are you stepping into situations where there are unwanted humans? How are you supporting young mothers and babies? And how are you finding the people that you know, not just the hypothetical people, how are you finding the people in your life and seeking life for them? Hey, if it's, if it's euthanasia or, you know, humans' propensity to want to take God's authority and decide when and how we end life, instead of getting out there and yelling at people and imposing your opinion, how are you seeking life? You know, the more that I hear about the quality of care in some of the facilities our church people end up in, the more that I understand these discussions about quality of life and and why people would even entertain those thoughts. And so, who are the forgotten among us in this congregation? Who are the elderly that have been stuck in some place and we all go about our lives and forget they exist? Who are the people in your family that have been relegated to the outside? Who are the people in your neighborhood? How can you seek life? If it's some other hot-button topic, if it's war, if it's capital punishment, if it's something else that's political, church, we are, are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we cannot allow the discussions of the world outside of these walls to divide us. Instead, in any of these issues, we need to come together and seek God's truth in Scripture. And God's truth seems to be pretty clear that we are not to be killing, and we're not to be angry. And we're not to hold a grudge and to, to be people who hate. Instead, we are people who seek life. You know, there's right and there's wrong. And God sets those standards, not us, because our hearts are drawn to evil. But you and I have a hard time seeing that right and that wrong clearly. And as Matthew shows us, sometimes God's standards seem impossible 
and possibly far above us. I mean, who among us has not been angry, irrationally angry at someone? Who among us has not offered a, a, a takedown of someone with our words? And if you curse someone, as Jesus says, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So that's where we are. That's the fallout of the human condition, the first sin. Common sense no longer works for us. It hasn't since the Garden of Eden, even when we think it does. Our hearts mislead us. They're drawn into sin. And we desperately need God to step in and to offer us salvation through Jesus Christ and to show us how to live with the truth in his words. So this week, remind yourself that life belongs to God. All life belongs to God. And as you do, see where God directs your attention. Do you see people around you who need help? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the people that stand on the street corners in our, our street or in, the, you know, in a part of town that you think is a bad part of town and so you avoid. Instead of judging people or avoiding certain parts of town, how can you seek life? How can you get involved and seek life for the people that you rub shoulders with, that you drive by, that you see? Again, when you look around you, what do you see? Are there kids and families in our church that are struggling? Are there families in in your kids' school who are struggling? Maybe struggling to make ends meet, maybe struggling mentally or physically or spiritually in some way. What are you doing to seek life in these instances? What are you doing to represent Jesus instead of feeling smug about yourself because you've got everything together? What do you see? Where is God asking you to step in? Is it for the elderly in your neighborhood? Is it for an older member of your family or our congregation? Is it with the next generation here? Man, there are a lot of ways in which the world is pulling at our young adults and our teenagers and, and drawing them away from God. How can you seek life and invest in them? Is it somewhere else? What is God calling you to do in a world of relational fallout, a world in which we are too often drawn away from God, consumed by hate, beset by death, tempted into sins that are, in Jesus' teaching, equivalent to murder. Christians are to remember that life belongs to God and that we're called to seek life for the people around us. And so would you join me in prayer this morning? God, we come to you and we thank you for the truth of your scriptures. Father, we know that you will never fail. God, that your word will never fail. Father, our our words, my words fail. God, our our perspectives are limited and our our moral moral compasses are off center in, in ways that we don't even recognize and so we're, we're so thankful for the reminder that we have in Scripture. God, we're thankful for the ways in which you've clearly spelled out your standards, laws and, and commands, instructions that we should try to live up to to please you, but God, not because it's going to earn us anything. Father, we know that Jesus... He paid our debt. 
God, he offered himself for us. And because of him, we can be right with you no matter how many times we screw up. And so, God, it is my prayer that, that today, if there are those among us who don't know you, that they would, they would turn to you in faith, Jesus, and make you the Lord of their life. And it's also my prayer that as we go out of this place, those of us who are part of your family, God, that you would open our eyes, that we would, we would be more aware of the people, of the situations that that we need to step into, that you're calling us to step into, to seek life. God, put that on our hearts this week and, and lead us. Jesus, we are your people, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, you know, Jesus said a few things. We read the Gospels together as a church this year. He's, one of the things he said in, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. That's why Jesus came, so that you and I could be right with God and that we can live forever in the presence of God. And so this morning, we have a chance to, to respond to God. We do that in worship here. We sing and we worship God that way. We do that as we gather at the Lord's table, share the Lord's supper together. And we get to respond and worship God as we give in a few minutes. And so as we sing, we'll be on our feet. We invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, giving your life to him, we invite you to come join us at the table to take that bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us and to take that juice that reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed for us and then to be thankful, offer thanks to the God who rescued you and gives you a chance at life. And so will you, will you stand and join us in worship?